John chapter 3. Last week we began looking at Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And for the next few weeks we're going to continue here. In every way and in all things, Jesus Christ is full of grace and he is full of truth. He is all compassion. He is infinitely wise. And don't we see these attributes of his displayed in the conversations that he had with those who either approached him or the ones that he himself approached? He deals with people where they are. And what I mean by that, you think about his conversation with the woman, on the, with the woman at the well. She came to draw water. Jesus had a conversation with her about true living water. You can also think about those who followed him, who were hungry. He realized their hunger. He fed them miraculously, but then he told them to labor not for the food which perishes and taught them about the gospel concerning himself. To the rich young man we looked at a few weeks ago, his conversation with him, he dealt with him concerning the issue in his heart, his relationship to his possessions and his unwillingness to give those up to follow Christ. He does the same with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, as we'll see today, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, which tells us at least that Nicodemus had a very prominent place amongst the Pharisees, possibly even being a member of the Sanhedrin. He would have put great stock in his birth, his lineage, his heritage, his learning. And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Nothing that you have is of any value. You must receive the new birth. And we're going to continue to talk about the new birth this morning. And, and even as I do so, I must confess, and you know already, that there is great mystery here. We can't fully explain it. It is a miraculous work of God. Taking someone from the realm of darkness and translating them into the realm and kingdom of light. Removing the heart of stone. Giving a heart of flesh. Jesus alludes to such in his conversation with Nicodemus when he gives the illustration of the wind, which we'll look at more fully later. Basically, he tells Nicodemus... You see the effects of the wind. You can feel it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. It's a mystery. So mysterious is the work of the Spirit in conversion and in granting the new birth. When we consider the new birth and the necessity of it, Jesus said again, and you should underline in your mind at least if you don't want to write in your Bible, that he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. Absolute necessity. If you are to see the kingdom, if you are to inherit eternal life, if you are to be saved, if you're to be converted, if you're to be justified before God, 
And the scripture uses different words and different language, all referring to this same idea of being saved or converted. If you are to experience the new birth, you must be born from above. So much of what we understand about the new birth and the necessity of it depends on what we think about how far-reaching the effects of the fall were upon mankind. And so before we get back into the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus, I want to just rehearse with you some things that you know, reiterate some things that we know, and then also perhaps underscore for those who do not have this very well settled in your own heart and mind, just how pervasive the fall of mankind was. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus did not have the ability to birth himself again. He understood these words, or at least he began to contemplate these words by asking Jesus a question. Can a man be born a second time, re-entering his mother's womb and being born? So even this learned teacher of Israel was having some question about what Jesus said. So here is the biblical reasoning, part of it at least, for the absolute necessity of the new birth to experience eternal life. And I'm just going to quote Paul in three places. Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Twice in Romans chapter 8, once in the 14th verse of 2 Corinthians. And these are verses that you know. What many would consider to be the greatest chapter in the greatest of Paul's epistles, the eighth chapter of Romans. Let me commend to you here, this is a lengthy book on the eighth chapter of Romans, but one that I have profited from perhaps more than any other book that I've read, and I've read a few, Octavius Winslow's commentary on Romans chapter 8 is astounding. If you can get your hands on a copy, it's not out of print, and you read Octavius Winslow's commentary on Romans chapter 8, you will come away from it humbled. You will come away from it with thanksgiving in your heart for what God has done for you in Christ. Romans chapter 8 is indeed a treasure amongst treasure in our, in our Bibles. But tucked in the very heart of that, Paul speaks to the necessity of the new birth. He doesn't use that language. You won't find him talking to the church at Rome about the new birth, but it is implied everywhere in Romans 8, and it is implied to the church at Corinth in the second chapter. This is what he says to them. He speaks of the carnal mind, and the carnal mind there is the fleshly mind. It is the mind we can understand of every person born into the world outside of Christ. Carnally minded, fleshly minded. He says, this carnal mind is at enmity against God. In other words, warring against God. Not being subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Listen to what he says. This is Romans 8, verse 8. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Nicodemus, conversing with Jesus, had everything 
possible to a Pharisee, a Jew of his day, to commend himself to God. But yet he was in the flesh. And we're clearly told those who are in the flesh cannot please him. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Secondly, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man here again is is a reference to man in his current, carnal, fleshly state outside of Christ as having inherited a sin nature from Adam and having been guilty of committing sin himself. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. Reason being, they are spiritually discerned. J.C. Ryle says this, Human nature is so entirely corrupt, diseased, and ruined by the fall that all who would be saved must be born again. No lesser change will suffice. They need nothing less than a new birth. Thus we all stand in need of being born from above. And it's important to reiterate this fact as well. Mankind, you, I, could do nothing to cure ourselves of this deadly disease. Try as we might. There was nothing we could do to bring a remedy. Someone must come to his aid. He must be born again. And praise God, someone has come to our aid. Someone has intervened in this most desperate of situations. And his name we know to be Jesus. In holding forth the necessity of a new birth... Jesus is not here calling for a sweeping moral, ethical reformation. Jesus is not saying to Nicodemus, nor did he say to the rich young ruler as he was recounting those commandments to him, he's not saying that you just need to do better. He didn't commend to Nicodemus the Sermon on the Mount again. He didn't say, Nicodemus, just just go back and listen to the Sermon on the Mount again, as if he could have anyway. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly said, You've heard said, but I say to you, raising the commandment, raising the ethical requirements of the law. Jesus is not here telling Nicodemus nor any of us that you just have to live better. You just have to do a better job. Clean yourself up a bit. He's not saying that anything at all regarding what we must do in any sphere of life will suffice for conversion. He is speaking about a complete change of heart. A complete change of heart that results in a change of character. When the Spirit of God comes into your life and births you again, gives you a new heart... What comes along with that new desires, new appetites, even new abilities that you did not have before. So this change of heart results in a change of character and it is produced in us by the Holy Spirit of God. 
we then necessarily repent of our sin, believe on Christ, and thus become a follower of his. This is from beginning to end, God initiating this new birth in us. So let's look at John chapter 3, and I'm going to read this conversation in part again to have it fresh in our minds. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that's where we stopped last week. We made it through the fifth verse. Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to it, come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may clearly be seen that they have been done in God. Let's pray. Father, we've come to your word. We've read it. We're asking you now to open it to our understanding. Father, would you impress upon all of us the necessity of the new birth? And then in grace and mercy, would you grant it? Give us what we need. Give us what you require. Do so in grace and mercy. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. So we're picking up in the sixth verse. And just a bit of review here. 
Nicodemus comes at night. Why so? Most likely because he's afraid of what would be thought of him, he being the teacher of Israel, after all, coming to another rabbi to receive instruction. The other two mentions of Nicodemus in this gospel, chapter 7, and then later as he comes with Joseph of Arimathea to receive the body of Jesus and care for it, it's mentioned of him there that he came to Jesus by night. He comes and makes a declaration to Jesus. We know that you are come from God, a teacher. No one can do what you do unless God is with him. And then you'll remember Jesus answers a question that he didn't ask. At least John didn't record it for us. And then he begins to, Jesus does, answer the questions that Nicodemus does ask. And so we're right in the middle of this answer to Nicodemus's question, his bewildered question. Most likely Nicodemus is an older man. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus first off replies to him by saying, verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Last week, the point is worth reiterating here. Jesus is not speaking of baptism. Water baptism does not save. Water baptism is a sign of your salvation. It typifies your salvation. Jesus is referencing here the washing of water by the word that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 5. The cleansing of the filth of the flesh that comes by the operation of the work of the spirit in your heart and in your life. So you must be born of water and the Spirit, else you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we pick up in the sixth verse when Jesus asserts, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So in essence, he's saying to Nicodemus, it wouldn't do you any good if, hypothetically speaking, you could re-enter your mother's womb and be born again, because that which is born of the flesh will always be flesh. It's one of the reasons why I don't think at all Jesus is referring to by his use of water in the third verse, just the physical birth, that you must be physically born and then be spiritually born. While that's certainly true, I think what he says here negates that in the sixth verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is of the Spirit is born of the Spirit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the flesh can only produce flesh. True on two counts. The flesh only produces other flesh after its kind. And the flesh only produces unredeemed humanity. In each of these instances... In this sixth verse, flesh is used twice, spirit is used twice. Words are the same, but with a little different meaning the second time that it's used. Let me tell you what I mean. When Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The first use of the word flesh 
is a reference to the physical body. That which your flesh can reproduce will only reproduce flesh of the same kind. That's true, but understanding the second use of the word flesh here a little differently, the flesh is only going to produce more unredeemed flesh, more men in their natural state, more men or women, more boys and girls who have fallen in Adam, who have died in him. That's all the flesh can reproduce. The flesh is always only going to reproduce that which accords to the flesh. That's why it is a vain and futile effort to preach a false gospel to a man and tell him to do something of his own accord to born himself again, to birth himself again. He simply cannot, nor will he. The flesh cannot produce it. The flesh is going to perpetuate flesh. The only things that unredeemed human nature can produce are things that accord with unredeemed human nature. So Nicodemus, it wouldn't matter. Even if you could do what you suppose needs to be done, it wouldn't matter. You would be in the exact same predicament again. But thank God for the truth of the second part of Jesus' statement in the sixth verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is of the Spirit. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. The things that the Spirit of God produces in man accord with the things of the Spirit of God. We saw last week the prophecy concerning the new covenant out of Ezekiel chapter 36. We were told there that in this day of the new covenant, a new heart would be given. That new heart accords to the things of the Spirit. That new heart, as I've already said, has new appetites, new desires, new yearnings. It's buffeted by the flesh, no doubt. So that Paul would say in Galatians chapter 5, there is an inward war that is taking place. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. One of the things that we as Christians take great heart in is that knowing in the end, the spirit wins. In the end, and even in this life, we're told in that same fifth chapter of Galatians that the spirit will produce fruit in us. Even though there is a real war taking place, as we submit ourselves to the Spirit, as we walk in step with the Spirit, as we submit ourselves to the Word of God that is inspired of the Spirit, then He will produce in us that which accords to the Spirit. That's why Paul could say in that 8th chapter of Romans again, that it is the Spirit of God working in me that bears witness in me that I am one of His own children. Otherwise, the flesh in me produces nothing that would convince me, give me any assurance at all, that I am a child of God. The Spirit, on the other hand, and the evidences that I can see, and just as important, the evidences that my brothers and sisters in Christ can see in me, give me great hope. Give me great cause to have a confession that I am indeed a child of the Most High God. 
In essence, Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, there is nothing that you can do. Absolutely nothing. The flesh produces the flesh. And then in the seventh verse, I've never really noticed this before until studying this recently, that Jesus commands Nicodemus not to marvel. So far up to this point in the conversation, that's all he's done. He's standing before Jesus as one dumbfounded, bewildered. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he go into his mother's womb and come forth a second time? And then in verse 9, he's still asking the question, how can these things be? But Jesus tells him plainly and clearly here in the seventh verse, in the form of a command, do not marvel. That I said to you, you must be born again. How can we not see the grace and the compassion, the mercy and the love of Christ for Nicodemus? Jesus could have left him in a bewildered, confused state of mind and heart. He could have left him in complete confusion. He could have let him walk away confused and limited by what only his earthly mind could make sense of, which would have been very little, if anything, about what Jesus had said. But Jesus did not. He didn't leave him there. That comforts me, and I hope it comforts you too. If you sit here this morning somewhat confused over this issue of salvation... If you're somewhat confused over this issue of the new birth, its necessity, its, but yet its mysterious nature, let me remind you, Christ is full of grace. And I can say with a great amount of confidence, if you desire to know the way, He will show it to you. I can say that because if you desire it, that's proof positive that He's already begun to work in you. Your natural man is not going to desire the work. That's why very often when I am counseling either with my own children or, or other children about this matter of salvation, and they're concerned over the state of their soul, and they're, they're perplexed about whether or not they are in the kingdom, whether or not they have been converted, I'm always greatly encouraged that there is such perplexity in them because the natural man very often just doesn't care. He will gladly and very often willingly refuse the things of Christ, and go right on into his eternal condemnation and punishment. But when you find yourself in great perplexity about the state of your soul, take heart. Press into Christ, and he will bring a resolution to it. Very often it's a sign that you've already had a heart transplant. And that good work that he began in you, he will bring it to completion. So do not marvel. Proceed in faith. Jesus gives Nicodemus an illustration. And as usual, as we've been studying the parables of Christ in our Bible study hour, Jesus uses a simple aspect of his own creating 
How often did Jesus use a seed, a plant, a tree? Consider the lilies, consider the birds. He uses another aspect of his own creation here to teach Nicodemus a great and even profound spiritual truth. The great and profound spiritual truth that Jesus is using, that he is teaching using this illustration, is the sovereign character of regeneration. When I say regeneration, I'm speaking about conversion or the new birth. All of those words mean basically the same thing. And this is what we must have if we are to see the kingdom and to inherit eternal life. And here is the illustration in the 8th verse. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. We, We know that to be true, right? Even now, I can look out and I can see the limbs of the trees moving gently. And what I know of my own experience tells me that though I can't see it, the wind is blowing. And if I were to step outside, I would feel it on my, on my skin. What little bit of hair I have left, I will feel the wind blowing. We will perceive it. We can't see it, but yet we know it's real. Jesus is using this illustration to teach Nicodemus about the work of the Spirit, the mysterious almost incomprehensible work of the Spirit in conversion, regeneration, and in granting the new birth. Nicodemus, you can't see it. You can't measure it, but yet it's real. The effects of it will be real. Those who experience it produce fruit. That's the way the tree is known, by the fruit that it produces. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound, but you can't tell where it comes from, nor do you know where it goes. The point not to miss here, according to William Hendrickson, is this. The wind does as it pleases. Can you control it? The wind does as it pleases, so does the Spirit of God. Can we control Him? Can we persuade him? Can we make deals with him? We cannot. The operation of the Spirit of God is sovereign, incomprehensible, and shrouded in mystery. Matthew Poole says, We cannot give ourselves or others a full account of the work of the Spirit in our lives nor to its inward operation, though the effects of it are clearly discernible. I can't give you a full account of how the Spirit removed my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh, nor can you give that account to me, but yet the effects of it are discernible. I am different. You are different. Christ has come, and when He has come, His Spirit has come. We're no longer the same. And then Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, it's, we need to go back and read these verses again out of the first chapter. We read them last week. We'll reference it again here and possibly even next week. 
this great prologue to John's gospel, the first chapter, not only introducing Jesus as the word of God and the man sent from God whose name was John, we're we're taught the very same thing here when we're told in the 13th verse concerning those who believe in his name. And let me ask the question, who will believe in the name of the Son of God? Who will come confessing their sins and believing in the name of the Son of God? Well, John answers that for us in the 13th verse. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To say it another way, those will come to believe in the name of the Son of God who have been born again. Who have been given the new birth. Those, by who, those to whom this mysterious work of the Spirit has blown upon them, so to speak. And how did the Spirit blow upon them? Well, Jesus has already told us back in the third verse, excuse me, the fifth verse, that unless one is born of water, God using His Word, inspired of the Spirit, applied by the Spirit to wash away the filthiness of the flesh, Last week we referenced Ezekiel 36. I want to do that again quickly and just read a verse there. Ezekiel 36, 25. Speaking of the new covenant to come, which Ron read for us out of Hebrews chapter 9. This new covenant far exceeds the old. It's much better than the old. And this is a part of it. This is an aspect of the new covenant that makes it so much better. In verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Mysterious. But yet you flip the page or look over the opposite page and you come to chapter 37. And there the Lord gives Ezekiel an illustration and a great one at that of this mysterious working of the new birth, so to speak, and how the wind blows where it will. Even when we don't understand or comprehend its action, his action. You know the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, the valley of the dry bones. I'm reading verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out, and the Spirit of the Lord set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by all of them around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Every detail of the word of God is important. If this is an illustration of the previous chapter, if this is an illustration of how God will accomplish what he has promised in the new covenant, and these dry bones, but yet the scripture says very dry bones, if these equate to those who have the heart of flesh, the heart of stone, 
How then will they ever come to life? How then will the Spirit of God ever move so mightily upon them that they are taken from one kingdom and placed into another? That they are now experiencing the grace of God. We have this great illustration given to us. Ezekiel is asked a question by the Lord, Will these very dry bones live? And we have to be instructed by his answer. Oh, Lord God, you know. Will the very dry bones of my children live? Oh, God, you know. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek you with everything that I am. I'm going to, to teach them the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But, oh, God, you know. Will my brother or my sister who grew up in the same home with me, who heard the same things that I heard, will they live? Oh God, you know. They're very dry. There is nothing within them that resembles life at all. And that's a picture of every natural man, even the good moral men and women who are outside of Christ. It's wrong thinking to think that every person outside of Christ is a Hitler. It's wrong thinking to think that every person outside of Christ is as bad as they possibly could be. But it's not wrong to think that every person outside of Christ is as lost as they could be. Is as condemned as they could be. And are even dead while they yet live. And again, I remind you that Jesus is not calling here in this conversation with Nicodemus for a moral, ethical revolution. Calling for a new birth. He's saying the impossible with men must happen. And all things are possible with me. So we go back to Ezekiel 37. After Ezekiel answers, O God, you know. He said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring forth flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Why do we preach the gospel to every creature under heaven, Lord helping us? Because that's what we're commanded. That's what we're commanded to do. It is through the preaching of the gospel, the making known of what Jesus Christ has done. That the Lord brings about this new birth. You can know a lot about God by observing his creation. But what you observe in creation will not save you. You may come to the conclusion that a, that a powerful, wise being has created all of these things, but that information alone will not save you. Someone must come or you must take up yourself and read about Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent from God, who willingly stepped out of glory, willingly stepped out of glory, considered it not robbery, to be equal with God, set all of that aside for a time, enter his own creation, come under his own law, being subject to it, coming in the form of a servant, 
enduring the death, even the death of the cross, being made sin who knew no sin, doing all willingly, doing all as an expression of his great love for his people. And so what we see here in chapter 37, verse 7, Ezekiel prophesying as he was commanded, that equates to our, under the new covenant, preaching the gospel. And then what happens? You know the story. There was a noise, a suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath. He said, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man. And say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. This is why we preach the gospel. Not only are we commanded and it is an act of our obedience but we preach in great hope this is why you should take great heart in sharing the gospel again with that lost friend that you love with your father with your mother with your sibling with your children with a stranger with an acquaintance with whomever it may be because it is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the power of God unto salvation. And that is what they must hear if they are to be born again. So back to John chapter 3 as we finish, finish up this morning. So far in this conversation with Nicodemus... Jesus has answered a question that wasn't asked. And in doing so, he tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus misunderstands. He's left to interpret that with his own natural mind, and he gets it all wrong. Jesus then reiterates, you must be born again. Do not marvel. Just as the wind blows around you and swirls about, you don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it goes, but you know it's real because you see the effects of it. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It will be discernible. It will be discernible in your own heart. Because you will have been made willing in the day of his power. What once you thought you could never do, and that being standing and making a bold profession of faith in Christ, declaring him to be your Savior, willingly getting into the water of baptism to bear witness to that, what you could have once never imagined yourself doing will be the greatest desire of your heart. I must Tell people what Christ has done for me. But in the ninth verse of John 3, this is where we'll pick up next week. Even after Jesus gave such a great illustration, Nicodemus answered and said to him, 
How can these things be? How can these things be? We don't know, again, how the Spirit of God came and moved on Nicodemus, but we know it did. John chapter 7, this same Nicodemus who came to Jesus fearful at night stood openly, defended him. And then, as I've already said, is one of the two that comes to Pilate and wants his body and cares for it. And don't forget, we're building, building, building to the great truth of the 16th verse. Probably everyone here can quote it, some portion of it. One of the first verses you teach your kids to memorize, and it's all immersed in this conversation of Jesus with this Pharisee. So Lord, help us as we proceed to divide accurately the Word of God, to cut it straight, and to believe it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for preserving for us this conversation. So much spiritual truth is here. Lord, we confess that if a man is to see, if a woman is to see, a boy or girl is to see the kingdom. If they're to enter in, if they're to have eternal life, there must be a new birth. Lord, we confess that that new birth is mysterious. But yet we trust you in it. We pray that you would grant that new birth to all present. Lord, we pray that in grace and mercy, you would make yourself known. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left it unto us to figure out how to be born again. As we continue reading in this conversation, you tell us so plainly that we do have a responsibility even as you are sovereign and work in sovereign ways, our responsibility as men and women is to come to Christ, believing in Him, and inherit eternal life. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We pray that you would use it to further your own glory. And to accomplish your purposes, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.